All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I'm joined today by Ryan Lewis. Ryan is a managing director at ERG Commercial Real Estate, a commercial real estate brokerage based in Garden City with a focus on both investment, sales, and financing. I want to bring in Ryan because financing has become probably the key driver of real estate transactions since the barrage of interest rate increases. I thought it'd be helpful to get Ryan's take on what he's seeing out there on the financing side. All that being said, Ryan, let's kick it off. How did you get started working in real estate? Thanks for having me. This is uh, very cool. So, you know, basically how I started out, you know, I went to James Madison University trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But at the same time, I always, since a young age, wanted to be into real estate. I mean, my, my family's uh, immigrants from, from Sicily and, you know, basically started out in the garment industry. And what they would do is, you know, they would eventually, you know, move out of the city and they moved out to Long Island and they would own the warehouses that they would occupy the, uh, the business in. You know, and then over time, you realize that not only could he expand and have multiple warehouses, but he ended up, you know, renting out half and occupying half. And they always stated to me at a young age was, you know, real estate, real estate. So, you know, he you know passed away when I was a little bit younger, but, you know, that tradition stayed out with my grandmother, my, my parents, you know, and stuff like that. So where I always had a, an admiration for it, you know, always looking at buildings, always wanted to be you know involved in it, wanted to be understanding of it. And then when I went into school, you know, went down like the business route. But then, you know, people, when you go into commercial real estate, everyone says commercial real estate. But what is there's so many layers to the business. You know, there's the banking side, there's the brokerage side, there's the acquisition side. There's so many layers to it that no one exactly knows what path to go down, who to speak to. Do you want to go big corporate? Do you want to go down to, you know, just mom and pop shop and work for a landlord? So there's so many different levels to our industry that you really kind of have to figure out what you want to do and how you want to do it. So, you know, once I started looking out for jobs and trying to figure out, you know, where I wanted to go with it, I first looked at you know, the analyst side of things and trying to figure out, okay, if I could learn to value real estate that way, ultimately I wanted to own real estate down the path, but they would be looking for five, 10 years experience on a, on a college kid coming out of school. There was no way I could be able to compete with these guys. So I ended up stumbled upon ERG, um, when we were when we had our office in Manhattan on Third Avenue, went in for an interview, learned that it was, you know, more than just a, a brokerage shop. You know, got to speak to the chairman of the company and got to understand, like, you know, what exactly we do and, and how we do it. And that ultimately, you know, got me into industry. I really just you know, kind of went on one interview, loved it and been with them for seven years now. Nice. So ERG obviously does a few different things, investment sales being one of them on the boroughs and Long Island. Uh, yeah. We are currently filming on Long Island right now. Yeah. Long Island, I think, was underappreciated for a lot of years, but obviously, uh, given the strength of industrial, Long Island has really taken off. So it's been a really interesting market the last few years. Yeah. But the financing side is really where I think we're seeing a lot of changes, obviously. Uh, the most dynamic uh, part of the market and really driving, like I mentioned, all the uh, transactions today. So let's take it from the top. At a high level, what do you see going on in the financing market? Specifically, if you're a potential purchaser looking to buy an industrial building, let's say you're an attorney or an accountant, you want to buy a three or four million dollar industrial building. Yeah. How would you think about the financing component today? Um, I mean, definitely, obviously, it's tightened over the last, I would say, couple of years. I mean, there's definitely not only, you know, from my experience of starting out, you know, in 2015, 2016, 2017, where interest rates really were stable. And everyone was pretty aggressive on rates. Everyone was pretty aggressive on, you know, what they were doing. Um, 
you know, nowadays, no one really 100% knows where the market is. The banks don't really know. A lot of lenders, like there's so much changing that it's a little more case by case on every deal. So it's a little bit like I know a lot of banks that we work with currently, you know, they're out of the market on some of them, you know, mm-hmm. because they don't know that, you know, they don't know where they're at with valuations. They don't feel comfortable with stuff that changes with the interest rates changing every, you know, few months and every few weeks sometimes. So it's relationship driven, of course. I mean, but now more than ever. And then the second thing that I would say is the asset classes have changed significantly on what's more relevant now and what's more like what banks are being a little more aggressive on. For example, multifamily was always the the crown jewel of, of financing because, you know, it was more stable. The more units you had there, people were always going to pay their mortgages. I mean, people always, people always going to pay their rent, excuse me. So, you know, it was always something that banks really were driven on. Nowadays, it's a little bit tougher and a little bit murky waters because of the new rent laws, because of a lot of the, you know, situations where these valuations have dropped significantly because of those laws and because interest rates have jumped up. So now, like you're seeing a lot of things where you can't refinance, you can't, you know, the acquisitions, like you're not being able to get in with as much money. Mm-hmm. So it's driving down a lot of the uh, the market and values. Right. And that's probably more specific to New York City, which is its own animal. So let's bring well, it Nassau back. Nassau County, too. I just was selling a 13-unit in Hempstead here, and, you know, they had... Uh, same kind of situation, DHERs, rent rolls, okay. like that, you know. Got it. But the Long Island product type is typically office, industrial, Correct. retail. So, you know, there are certainly challenges, like you just mentioned, in the city, which is a whole other yeah. conversation itself. But let's talk about traditional retail on Long Island right now. So if you were to suggest to a potential client the type of financing to take out, right, CMBS has obviously, you know, minimums you have to hit. So... Between, for example, a traditional local community bank yeah. versus a credit union. Do you see any pros and cons between those two? Um, yeah. So, well, especially in the CMBS side versus the banking side. So, and as you get to the larger banks versus smaller banks as well. And that all comes down to relationships and being able to communicate with them. When you have, like, for example, a CMBS lender, I mean, that's obviously, you know, sold off into the open market. You can't really have that relationship mm-hmm. that you have with a local bank. So. What you're seeing on a lot of the CMBS side of things, which, you know, I've dealt with on shopping centers and big office buildings that I'm dealing with right now, when stuff starts to go awry where, you know, say like you lose a big tenant or you have you know, an issue, you can't just pick up the phone and say, that, listen, I have this under control. I have the plan. And this was they're less forgiving in that sense. The local banks and the relationships that they have, they understand you as an investor. They understand more of like the real estate side of things and they feel comfortable with who you are. You know, and, and, and the relationship you've had over the years, they're going to be a lot more forgiving. Right. I mean, CMBS is great in the sense of, of rate driven, but I typically try not to recommend it as much mm-hmm. unless you're a sophisticated owner that understands it, you know, completely and understands what they're getting into. Because obviously you have the relationship driven and then also the prepayment penalty right. That's with the, the big PPs yeah. and, you know, yield maintenance. So people think it's all great going into that. But when, you know, you want to take out money in the future or you want to have a little bit of leeway with some things or put in a new tenant, they're the ones that are going to be a lot stricter than your local bank that we deal with. And specifically between the local banks, the community banks versus the credit unions, have you done any credit union deals? I have. I mean, credit unions, you know, the only thing with credit unions is obviously you have to be within that certain area. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to have some kind of presence within, you know, if they're Nassau County or Suffolk County, you have to have some tie to that. That's number one. 
Two is, you know, the pro is that they don't have prepayment penalties. Right. You know, majority of them don't. But on the flip side of that is they'll charge you a little bit, you know, a higher fee to kind of go in to have that flexibility. Right. We'll deal with a credit union. I mean, sometimes they're a little strict with some stuff, but, you know, it really just case by case because a lot of these, the credit unions and the, and the local or regional banks or whoever, they're going to constantly be changing what they're pro on, what they're not, what they want to see more of, how they want to diversify. Mm-hmm. You know, if they have a lot of office and they, and they don't feel as confident in office right now, they want to diversify and they want to, they're not going to be as aggressive on it because... They want to, you know, balance out the portfolio. Right. As far as users, so if a uh, user decides to occupy uh, an industrial property in Hop Hog, they want to take out SBA financing. Have you dealt with that at all? Yeah. And have you uh, seen any changes in the SBA financing side? Um, not to like the extent of where like it's like the process is still very similar. Um, they might be a little more strict on your financials. You know, where, you know, they used to be a little more forgiving with, you know, some things where you didn't have to have a, such a long track record or like a long business. You could be a little more leeway with some stuff. Nowadays, you know, it's very strict on how much leverage they want to give you because, you know, typically the SBA, the, the thing that's a pro about that is that you get the business and obviously the real estate. So you're able to then get it at a higher LTV mm-hmm. on something like that right now where people aren't as confident in the real estate values. You're still not getting leverage that you're hoping for. And, you know, and you have to go through a ton of more paperwork and it takes a little bit longer to kind of get these deals done. And what do you foresee happening to all the MES lenders out there? All those guys who kind of took those subordinate positions, you know, at higher rates, right? Yeah. Uh, The capital stack is obviously changing now. Yeah. How's that going to play out? You know, I mean, they're vulnerable. They're they're very vulnerable, and the reason why us as we, we're also I said private lenders, you know, we do investment sales, we do private lending. We don't like to take any mes positions on anything or subordinate positions because, you know, if they're going to default, you have to protect yourself. If you go into default in the first position and it starts to accumulate default interest, your position is getting weaker by the day because there's only so much equity there in a property. So you know, ultimately, when it goes to foreclosure, I mean, you know, technically the first position has his right to collect as as much as they can. Right. You know, so when you're on a mes position, you know, either you got to buy out a first position, which, you know, sometimes if you can make a deal with them or not, or, you know, you're going to be dealing with uh, trying to sell it out if you can. But it's just a very weak state where, you know, where equity is dropping and values are dropping, you know, it's getting vulnerable. I mean, I'm dealing with some sale deals right now where I'm doing a lot of short sales right now. So if you're in a mes position, you're not getting paid. First position holds the cards and, and that's really where, where they're at. And from an investor perspective, walk us through the opportunities potentially there because, you know, short sales, which is usually in the residential world, but the opportunity is interesting for a lot of the commercial investors as well to the extent that it exists. So from yeah. that side of the table, where do you see the opportunity there? Well, I mean, the thing is, like you're, you know, you're coming out of like a huge wave of just so many things that are affecting the real estate between COVID, you know, changing of like, for example, even like retail and office. I mean, office is not what it once was. I mean, you're seeing a lot of people that are, you know, they're not going back to work. They can't fill the space. You know, they're trying to reposition these assets, but they can't. They can't figure it out. Retail. I think retail, I mean, you used to have a large section of retail tenants that used to be able to, you know, compete for the same spaces. They're not in the market anymore. They're online and they're mm-hmm. and they're not really, you know, taking those spaces anymore. So all your rents, all your values, everything are going down, right? So what does that do on the short sale, right? So then during all that turmoil where the banks eventually had to say, well, we're going to put you in default. 
So now this default that was running for, say, six months or a year because people think it's going to get better or it's going to be you know, wishful thinking. All of a sudden now you, you think you owe one thing and you're owed you know, so much more in default interest that you owe more than what the property's worth or, you know, or slightly less where, where you know, right, right around the time where you're going to be dealing with fees and issues and things like that to the point where almost where the lender is more of the seller than the actual mm-hmm. owner of the property. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm dealing with currently where I had to cut deals where, you know, I had to not only get permission from the, from the owner to, to take a deal, but I have to get permission from the lender because he might have to take a loss on there. Mm-hmm. Now, the opportunity for an investor is obviously is that, you're dealing with people who have to do something. These sellers have to do something and the lenders, depending on if they want to be, you know, if they want to own it or not, you know, because every day if they want to go through a big foreclosure or not, depending on what that is, that's going to, you know, determine whether they want to just take their money and get out now and deal with it or they want to take the loss. What do they want to do? So they're in a position where they really got to figure out, you know, where they think the market's going to go and how, you know, vulnerable are they where it's not about really today, but a year now or two years from now, if they have to go through a lengthy foreclosure. So if you have, you know, if you're an investor that's able to, you know, strike a deal and move quickly and things like that, you're going to be able to get a lot of great opportunities. And the deals you're working on, are they typically buying the note or are they buying the asset itself or both? So it's both. So, you know, it's all about basis, you know, when we're dealing with this stuff, um, like a lot of the investors don't really care about what someone purchased it for or what their debt level is before, because that's really not their problem. They want to know what is today. So if a person needs X amount of dollars to get out, but the value is not there anymore, then you have to deal with the lender. Now, the lender, they're going to say, well, do I want to own this thing or not? Right. And then they're going to say, well, if I want to take this loss and you know, I'm going to deal with it, then then they will. But if not, they're going to hold strong. So Instead of like, you know, approaching the, where the deal doesn't make sense on the basis of the sale, you can go to lender and say, well, they're in a little bit of a better basis here and say, well, you know, will you sell this to me for a discount, get in at an easier level, and then they'll deal with the foreclosure. Right. So a deal I did in the city where, you know, a lender was owed, you know, I think it was $9 million or something like that, but he was into it probably for $6 million or something, right? He said, you know, I'll sell my note for $8 million. I'll leave a million dollars on the table. They'll take, take a little bit of a discount and- the buyer will instead purchase the debt and they'll work out a deal with the with the owner. We'll most likely try and restructure it and give them time to whatever, or they'll cut a deal with them later on. So there's so many different ways you could do it, but it really comes down to cost basis. Right. And that's really, yeah. Makes sense. Uh, it's funny, Long Island, I feel like it's rare <laughs> to see those types of transactions yet. Uh, city probably is more like you mentioned because of the rent control laws, right? And asset values being hammered. Obviously, things are changing in the office market in Long Island as yeah. well, but we haven't really seen those dominoes. Well, even shopping centers. I mean, shopping center, you know, pretty close by to where we are. You know, I mean, that shopping center traded for $50 million back in 2014, right? And then recently it traded, it was a year or two ago, traded for $26 million. So, you know, the levels of value have dropped significantly because... You're not filling the space. There's a ton of vacancies. Right. You know. That was also a COVID deal, by the way. COVID definitely changed. It seems like valuations bounced back up, but for sure, I hear your Yeah, point. but you know, so but I'm saying, but that's the aftermath of what's coming out. So if now, if you're in default and you have like all that pressure and you can't rent it out for $50 a foot to cover the debt service of what the bank is requiring, right? Because the market is now 30 bucks a foot or 35 bucks a foot. The deals don't make sense anymore at that. So now someone who buys it at 26 or even 30 or whatever it is on a COVID deal or even a little, little bit later on, the value is significantly not there anymore 
to where you know the only way to make the deal viable again is you have to trade it at a, at a lower cost. Right. Yeah. In hindsight, that was a, a great time to buy. Uh, we were pretty active back then. That was definitely a, an interesting time to be a buyer. You know, it's funny today's market. You know, it's kind of the struggle on the buyer side. It's these cap rates and the borrowing rates. Essentially, mm-hmm. the spread is so small. Yeah. You know, there's always that healthy balance of you know you're buying at a seven cap, and your borrowing costs are whatever four, yeah. four and a half, yeah. right? Yeah. There's no, or there's very few, you know, eight and a half cap deals, right, to line up with this increase in interest rates. And that might change right over time. I'm expecting it to change, but it's been a good six months where it's like sellers have been able to ask for that pre-pandemic, you know, old school pricing without reflecting that new interest rate environment. Um, So it's definitely been a challenge on on the buy side. You may have seen that as a, on the lending side as well, where it's just, you know, it's just hard to make things make sense unless you're in a 1031 and you have to buy, right? Yeah. Caps is a is a funny thing in the in the real estate world because everyone's always like you know cap rate cap rate driven and it's true but it's really I look at it as an indicator you know a lot of the the guys that I deal with obviously are more value add driven and they want to find deals that they can increase that that cap or their return sure. but so they'll look at it and say well if I if I'm buying a, a two cap but I can get it to an eight by doing this and bringing in the tenants and doing this and what and I have you know people that I can bring in there I'm creating that value that's a good deal. But on paper, sure. people say it's well, it's a two cap versus buying something that's already finished, done deal, like a triple net property or, or a shopping center that's maxed out rents. You know, you're going to want a higher cap rate on that deal. Right. Because you're not going to be able to get that juice. You're almost buying a depreciating return because if you lose a tenant or have a problem with the building, you got to fix up something. You know, like over time, you're going to have to put more money back to the property and you can't really increase those rents. I mean, those stabilized 80, 90% occupied seven cap deals, those triple net, you know, McDonald's deals, those are still trading at or asking five, five and a half caps, right? The borrowing cost is literally five. It's break even. But those are different types of investors. Sure. You know, and they're not really bankable either. I mean, they are, don't be wrong, but I'm saying that like, you know, they're not doing that solely to finance that a lot of times. A lot of times it's someone that had a big shopping center or office building or multifamily building. I don't want to deal with the management anymore. Let me just sell out. I'll 1031 into this. Sure. And I, you know, I have mailbox money and, you know, yeah. just deal with it that way. Yeah. I think the 1031s are definitely driving most of the buying activity today because most buyers are definitely waiting for a little bit of a reset. As far as LTV and debt service coverage requirements, are you seeing any changes there recently? Um. Well, I mean, the debt service, obviously, you know, I mean, ultimately when, when we're, because we underwrite every deal we do before we even send to any lender, bank, whatever we got to do, because that's how we're able to kind of separate ourselves is because we look at it in the investor standpoint and we look at it at the bank standpoint as well, as we are lender, broker, you know, the chairman owns a portfolio of real estate, you know, we manage that real estate. So, you know, we have to really understand what's like the real, you know, underlying numbers when you're looking at a building. So in the debt service, a bank might be a little more conservative on their numbers. For example, like if you're grossing this amount of money, but they don't feel the market is as strong right now on the rents or something like that, they'll they'll decrease it or they'll, or they'll add more vacancy or they'll add certain types of like, you know, stronger management fee or stronger whatever, just to kind of feel a little more conservative just in the event that something happens, right? Because the market's not as stable. And, and so when they're underwriting this stuff, 
the debt service, right? You're you're mostly a little more on a conservative NOI, but also you know, you're now you're underwriting at a rate system to show up three percent. They doubled, right? You know where you were underwriting stuff in the beginning of the year, you know three and a quarter, you know three and a half percent. You know now you're looking at stuff, you know five and five and a half, five point seven five, six and a quarter, right? You know, depending on the asset, so. You know, the debt service itself doesn't cover as much, and you're being a little more conservative of where the market is. Right. LTV is always almost just like a check and balance. You know, we, we feel comfortable based on the cash flow, but if the, if the value, for some reason, the value is out of whack, like then they'll lower it. But usually it's just a confirmation that, you know, they, they didn't miss anything. Right. And between the different asset types today, if you had to put the top one or two, which asset types do you think banks are most keen on? Is it multifamily, industrial, usual suspects? Yeah, I would say multifamily is still number one. Um, a little more, like where a multifamily, you're not, you really can't do as much refinance anymore. It's usually just more acquisition. Mm-hmm. But as far as industrial, I mean, it's definitely... Cream of the crop. Yeah, it's, it's really jumped up there significantly. Because, I mean, and that's funny because when I spoke to, you know, a lot of people in the industry, I mean, they said it wasn't that, you know, for years. And all of a sudden now, I mean, that's where everyone wants to be. Everyone wants to tell me because there's just so much more tenants and stability in that world now versus, you know, retail where I don't have to pay X amount of dollars a foot for a retail space because no one's really going there anyway. I'm going to buy an industrial property, pay a little bit cheaper. I can get cheaper rents. It's a more viable deal, you know, and it's more stable in that sense because there's a lot more with all the technology, the distribution centers, the the people are just putting servers in industrial and just, you know, and, and just warehouse and that stuff, you know, for the tech, you know, so you're getting a lot better quality tenants and, and just more driven towards that. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and put your investment sales hat on now, you know, you have a team, I think you mentioned uh, before we started talking of 10 to 15 people or yeah. so. Are you finding that owners are less motivated? It's always tough to get it in order to sell, but is it more difficult now because of those quote unquote, handcuffs of those low interest rates that, you know, today if they were to buy something else, they'd have to finance at a much higher rate, right? Um, I guess if you look at it that way, yes, but it's more, there's more deals, I guess, going on, I would say, like in the sense of like people have to do something, right? Whether they have to finance or they have to sell or whatever, you know, wherever it comes to be. This is an environment where they, you know, they don't really have a choice. Where it used to be, like, you know, if I get my number or if I put it on the market and I put a little bit of premium, you know, then I'll sell it. If not, but this case, it's, you know, I got a mortgage coming due, or I'm losing value on my property that I thought I wouldn't have it, and I don't know if, when this market's going to come back, and this might be the new reality. So they kind of have to assess it, you know, what it is today, and and so the people who are putting the the properties on the market like that have never done it before or never really really knew where they were. They're a little more open-minded to it, or if they have, you know, obviously mortgage situations or vacancies and things like right. that. The people that had the property on the market beforehand that don't really have the stress, you know, of anything, they're not. Right. There's no, there's no point in selling anymore because it's like I could have had this, you know. Now why? Why am I going to sell in this time frame now? Right. But to your point, the biggest trigger of a sale today seems to be someone's mortgage coming due, you know, this year at these much higher rates. You know, they had to come up with a good amount of equity, Yeah, which is funny. I saw a report from one of the, um, the larger brokerage shops out there that uh, said there was a ton of new funds being created to provide this kind of rescue capital, right? Kind of waiting for this to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, people call them up and say, hey, I'm underwater. You know, I need some rescue financing. You know, can you help me out? 
and there's a ton more capital on the sideline than there are actual, uh, yeah. you know, owners that are looking for that option. And obviously, again, that could certainly change in the next yeah. three months, six months. Yeah, I'm sure people are kind of betting that it will. But it's just an interesting dynamic where that kind of supply of money versus the demand from the owner's side. Because the owners, you know, unless you bought in the last year or two, if you bought five, six, seven years ago, you probably have a decent amount of equity built up. You're still yep. pretty liquid. Not to say there aren't opportunities going forward, but it definitely seems like there's a waiting game for those guys to swoop in and start providing that rescue financing. If they can get it, though which is what I love about what we do is because, you know, well, I mean, really what it comes down to in any deal with us is where do you, you got to find the deal and you got to find the money. So you got to obviously be, you know, in this environment, you have to have access to capital in order to obviously deploy to get these deals. But what I was saying back in 2021 was refinance, don't let your mortgage come due, you know, get everything set so that way you don't have to deal with the stress of these things. Nowadays, everyone, and then people who listen to me, obviously they're good, they're set, the people who didn't list me now, like they're in a situation where they're coming to me to get that rescue financing. And I say, it doesn't, it doesn't underwrite anymore. So do you have the money to pay it down? No, I don't. Okay. I have to sell. Right. And, and I'm telling them in, a, in like a, you know, obviously in a, in a tough way where it's saying like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help them and understand like how the situation significantly changed, you know, but the people on the, on the flip side of the stuff, the people who do have that equity built up, I'm telling people either refinance still, even at the higher rates, because about, it's more about the cash flow. So even if you have a loan coming due maybe in a year, I mean, not all the cash flow, excuse me, about taking cash and being sitting on cash because you could turn that money into deploying it and buying these investments of when people have to do something. So if they're going to be, you know, pulling money out of this stuff or if they're going to be selling their, say, bottom 10% of their portfolio, right, sell it now, even if you're taking a little bit less because you have so much more opportunities that are going to come up that if you don't, if you don't do this now, because it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, this, this, the process happens, you know, 60, 90, 120 days, you know, just to get financing or, or whatever you got to do or sell, you know, it won't take some time. It doesn't happen in a week. So if you see an opportunity and you don't have that cash, you can't use it. Right. So, you know, we're telling people, you know, the people who listen, the refinance, they're set, they're holding. The people now that don't really have those concerns, they're still taking money out for, to be able to deploy. The people who need that rescue financing, it might be too late for a lot of them. Right. And it seems like the ones that are have gotten in trouble that are hit the headlines recently are people who have taken floating rate and notes the last couple of years, yeah. which to me seems, I get it, right? They're, it's at a lower rate, but knowing that rates are so low, historically yeah. low, why not fix that rate? And people think they can predict the market, you know, to that point and they can use it. Maybe they got like a little bit of better terms by getting that floating rate, but in the long run, it, it doesn't help them. Right. So going back to the investor hat on, you know, where do you see the opportunities today, especially in a kind of frothy market, right? Everyone's kind of waiting for something to happen later this year. Everyone's yeah. kind of pundit these days. But yeah. if you were to either buy notes, buying assets, where do you see the opportunity out there? Um, I mean, like, I, I hate to say both. Notes, like for example, I know a client of mine who just purchased a note where, you know, it was a, it was a deal where it was a large vacant retail building. There was a, a, a lender, a private lender in there that didn't really want to go through the foreclosure. And, and that, that's not really their business model of anything. Not saying they're going to go foreclosure or anything, but they just wanted to get out. Right. And so they went, they purchased it. They, they tried to, they're reaching out to the owner and they're saying, Hey, you know, we'll give you a restructure and, and we'll, you know, be able to kind of set you on your way. And they, they, they can bring in some tenancy and, and, and kind of make that building viable again. So that way you have a viable note. 
you know, and you're able to kind of work it. And then, you know, if it doesn't, obviously they got to do what they got to do, you know, but at least you're giving yourself an option because you're getting yourself at a, at a lower enough basis where the building makes sense if you have to take it back at that price point. Where like if you were going to pay somebody off on the sale, right, where the guy owed, you know, say it was owed $5 million and, you know, and the note was, you know, from all the default interest and all that stuff, you know, the building isn't worth that anymore. So to pay that plus closing costs, plus all the other stuff to do to get the guy out, it just doesn't make sense. So the only play would be to talk to the note holder where you have other deals where people who are trying to get ahead of that curve, where they don't want to get to that point where they're upside down or have any issues. That is going to be more where, you know, it's going to be just, okay, let me structure the deal. Let me pay a quick deal where it's a 30 day close or all cash deal. Very quick. You know, maybe you're not going to get your premium premium, but at the end of the day, it's not about what you sometimes make. It's what you net. Because even if you hold out for a little bit of a higher price point and you're in default, right, you're accumulating money every day. Right. So if you let that sit for, you know, three months just to hold out for an extra price point, you know, you first off, you run the risk. But the second thing is, you know, you might not end up getting more dollars about even at the higher sale price. Right. So sometimes it's better just, you know, I'm out clean, I'm good, move forward, you know. And so, you know, that's part of my job on, on the broker side of things is obviously it's sometimes your highest price and you tell these guys it's not the best deal. Terms matter. Who is buying it matters, you know, in the sense of like, do they have the funds to be able to do this? Are they, you know, have you closed deals with them? Do you know that they're real? Do they know they have other properties on the market? Or, you know, they have proof of funds and things because you don't want to get into a situation where now there's a contract issue or something like that. And now that drags on and every day you're still accumulating that default interest. Got it. Yeah. So to wrap it up, uh, ERG, what do you guys been working on these days? What's been the kind of bread and butter? Um, you know, the, I would say sales has really taken a, a huge switch from the financing, I would say, in the last six months because, you know, a lot of these deals, you know, are not being able to be refinanced anymore. So everyone who has the mortgage coming due, you know, where it used to be like you could be able to get out, that has kind of been, you know, a little bit more difficult to do. So, you know, what we've been really doing is is getting people out of these distressed situations, whether it's through short sales, whether it's just straight, you know, helping them, you know, navigate these murky waters of values and understanding where it is. We're able to kind of achieve that premium. Like I just sold 46 units up in uh, Westchester where, you know, not only did we help them get financing on the building where we actually had like 14 vacancies and, and uh, you know, a ton of issues there. We were able to get them financing through relationships, but also we lent, uh, we gave them a private loan on a, another building that we, uh, that he owned to be able to get him a good leverage so that he can go in and, and renovate it. So it's not so much about, I guess, you know, what avenue to go down. We don't want to put ourselves in a box and, and, and kind of just, you know, this is what we do. We figured out how we can help people in, in this, in this turmoil and what's going on. But I would say, you know, sales has really switched, you know, I would say in the last six months or three months versus the financing world. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds good, Ryan. Thanks again for coming in. Yeah. Thanks so much.